Yeah, I didn't realize of all the controversies of uh, 2021, 2022, that my hair would be, have such divided opinions on it. Joanna, I had no idea. You know who doesn't miss it? My daughter. (laughs) Well, we are continuing in our Advent series, uh, Chasing Hope, looking at different aspects of uh, Matthew's story of the Magi's visit to the newborn king. And like any story, there are facets, like a diamond, you rotate it around and you see something new about it. And so my hope is that we will see something new as we come back to, yet again, this familiar story. Well, there have been a lot of articles, even a few books written about the spiritual yearning present in the music of the Irish rock band U2. Uh, Graham, my son, is just now getting into music, which is such a fun thing. Uh, He's listening to, you know, all kinds of stuff, uh, you know, stuff that I listened to when I was growing up. And so, like, you know, any parent, I had to give him a little bit of an education, about how to appreciate him. And I told him that Joshua Tree, Rattle and Hum, Octung Baby, perhaps the greatest trio of albums ever put out by a band in a four-year stretch. Now, obviously, that's just my opinion. But it's true. So just, you know, just know that. I'm your pastor. I wouldn't lie about that stuff. I've seen them in concert five times. And... Um, you know, there are several moments as you're going through a YouTube concert where that kind of spiritual subtext of the lyrics just kind of comes out. But none of it's so obvious as when Bono starts singing, I believe in the kingdom come, then all the colors will bleed into one, but yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds and loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame. You know I believe it. And then it starts to feel like church, and all the people there who are singing along, worshiping along, have become into a congregation that didn't even know it, and his voice drops out in the back, and the crowd carries the singing forward with the chorus, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. If you've been to a U2 concert, you know. You know the moment. Now that song is older than Mike St. Dennis, Uh, but it still has a lot of mileage to it, I think, because it taps into the spiritual yearning of our age, uh, this, this search for transcendence, this search for, for holiness, the kind of longing of a spiritual journey that you go upon, and the journey changes you. But the question we have for us this morning in our scripture passage is, what do you do when you actually find what it is that you're looking for? So with that, we're going to continue With Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as Laura Jean uh, comes forward to read, feel free to follow along in your Bibles. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, 
For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, Almighty God, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, we who have come seeking out a word that can only come from you would find that word, that it would speak to us into the places of our heart, that the light of Christ may illumine those darkened places. We pray this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Matthew starts out his gospel with a genealogy. Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it's a way of saying that the story of Jesus is also the story of Israel, that these are one of the same piece. Abraham left his home in Ur to go on a journey to the land of promise that God would reveal to him when he got there. And from that promised land, the people of Israel journeyed to Egypt, where under Jacob and his son Joseph, they were led to flourish. But then from Egypt... The descendants of Jacob journeyed through the wilderness. They were put into Egyptian slavery, and they were brought out by Moses until they reached the promised land again. And then in time, they were uprooted from that land by the Babylonians. And then once the Persians came and conquered the Babylonians, they began the journey back home. And so sometimes the Old Testament reads like one long journey after another. For Matthew, all of that background... All of that is the prelude to the gospel. It's to call out that his people have been on a journey with God for a long, long time. Chapter 2 picks up this theme with yet another journey. Only the ones on this journey are not children of the covenant. They are ethnic, cultural, religious outsiders to Israel's story. And that is exactly Matthew's point. He is saying that the search for God is simply part of what it means to be human. And that may as well be the introduction to your story and my story as well, because we know what it is like to go on a journey in search of something, even if we're not sure what it is that we're looking for. When we're young, it's the search to belong. And so we you know, try on different identities and we shed them like clothing, trying to find the right one that fits us. We go off to college in search of a future, in search of a kind of uh, a, a train of thought or, or a kind of work that will provide meaning for our life to, to kind of find a kind of life that we're going to have. And then we leave the job or the town that we're part of in search for a better life. That wouldn't have made sense to our grandparents, but it's just what we do. And then we leave the apartment for the starter home. We leave the starter home for the bigger home. We watch a little HGTV and figure out how we can make that home just right. All in the hope that somewhere along the line, we're going to find something that looks a little bit like contentment. 
But even if you never leave your hometown, everything changes around you. The culture changes so fast that it doesn't take too long for what is familiar to feel different. People move out, people move in, change is constant. The philosopher Heraclitus once said that you cannot ever step into the same river twice because it's constantly in flux, constantly in motion. And so that is with us. We're always searching. The soul is always on the move, searching out something. One of the subtexts of late modernity is that if things aren't moving kind of up and to the right on the graph, then, then that means that they are moving down and to the left. And so we have this kind of deep restlessness that wells up in us, and we feel like our circumstances are keeping us from reaching the next level of existence. And if it's not our circumstances, then we'll blame it on our jobs, on our spouses, on our families. And we begin to think that if we were dealt a different hand, then somehow life would be better. Life would be different if there was something else out there. For a while, my kids were hooked on playing the game of life. You guys remember that? One with a little spinny wheel in the middle of it? Well, there comes a time very early on in the game where you draw some cards, right? And these cards tell you everything about what your life is going to be like. Uh, between that and the spinny wheel in the center, the circumstances of your imaginary life are determined. Whether you get married, what kind of job you get, when and if you have children... And then you keep getting cards throughout. Lost your job. Oh. Win the lottery. Yay! Up and down, up and down it goes until you land in this mythical place called retirement. And then the game of life ends. Which I'm not really sure what we're teaching our kids with that. And now half of the time when we would play this game with our family, like we wouldn't make it past the first couple of turns, right? Because they just end up dumping the cards back in the box because they already know that if you don't get the right cards, then life is not going to turn out very well. And, you know, as adults, we try to maximize and make sure that we draw the right cards from the very beginning. We focus on the career card, on the house card, on the family card. We try to arrange our decks, spell out a life that doesn't kind of end in a little bit of a cul-de-sac. We want to keep things a little bit open so we can find that next thing that's out there. And then we fixate on maximizing those cards. We tell our students to you know, take the right classes so you can get into the right school, so you can get into the right job. And of course, all of that is very exhausting for us. And so we look for help on our search. We, we try things like mindfulness or a juice cleanse or CrossFit or yoga or a half a dozen self-help books try to answer the questions that keep us up at night. And then sometimes we just decide to move to a new town altogether or we pile on a few extra degrees. We find a new job thinking if I just had that card or if I just had this card, then I would live life right. And don't get me wrong, maybe those things help for a bit. But then after a while, always chasing something new, you realize that it's just the same old person spinning the wheel. The same person keeps on playing the game. And maybe that's why some of us have landed in church. We think that if we just add a little bit of religion to my deck, then I might find the thing that I'm looking for. Well, the thing is, that's not just modern life. That's the way it's always been. 
That's Matthew's point at the beginning of his gospel. Humans have always been searching. We've always been desperate to find out the thing that's going to help us along the way. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that it was the custom of the ancients to look to the stars to try to determine what was going to happen in the future. Uh, that was true whether you were Persian or Greek or Egyptian or Chinese. The, the line between astronomy and astrology was a blurry one because it was all thought to be one of the same thing. And some of the maps that we've found from antiquity are really impressive in their scope and in their size. In fact, there was one discovered in ancient China in the south that uh, had over 1,300 uh, stars mapped out in 137 complete constellations. And most of these things, they, they, they thought of them as different data points to try to read out what was going to happen into the future. If you think about 1,300 stars and all of the ways that they move and form constellations on their courses, that is a lot of, you know, data for interpretation. There are a lot of ways that you can kind of figure out the way that things are going to happen. Well, most of us, we don't look to the stars, but we seek out meaning nonetheless. Uh, in a few weeks' time, near the start of the new year, we're going to start seeing those commercials about Google's year in search. Uh, they're always a fascinating snapshot of our cultural moment. And the reason for that is that you know, social scientists and cultural observers alike have noted that we are living in what is called the information age, that data is the most valued commodity that we have. The ones who control the flow of information are the ones who control just about everything. And so we try to get as much information as we can, and we can't get enough of it, as a matter of fact. Not too long ago, an article in Scientific American opened up with this, and it's a little bit long, so bear with me. The amount of data that we produce doubles every year. In other words, in 2016, we produce as much data as in the entire history of humankind through 2015. Just let that set in for a second. Every minute, we produce hundreds of thousands of Google searches and Facebook posts. These contain information that reveals how we think and how we feel. Soon, the things around us, possibly even our clothing, will also be connected to the internet. It's estimated that in 10 years' time, there will be 150 billion networked measuring sensors, 20 times more than people on Earth. Then, the amount of data will double every 12 hours. Many companies are already trying to turn this big data into big money. In other words, we're about half a step away from the dystopian world of Ready Player One. And the thing is, we can't seem to get there fast enough. In fact, Meta... Facebook, doing everything it can to kind of usher us along the way. And the amount of information out there is absolutely overwhelming. It comes at us all the time, so much so that we cannot possibly do anything with all of it. Uh, after about the third or fourth time uh, this week of being told just a minute, I finally, in exasperation, said to my son, look, kid, you are not going to come to the end of the internet like, there will always be one more video. Just fold it up and come to dinner. Not one of my better parenting moments, but uh, there I was. We can't stop the download because we think that, that that's the way that, you know, we're, we're, we're wired to just kind of 
think that that's the, the way that we're going to get any sort of information. That it's always just the thing that we're looking for is the next click away. We think it's our job, it's our responsibility to know as much as we can, to know everything there is to know. And so we're always searching out for something new. And we seek after information because it's power. We think that if we, if we find what we're looking for, we're going to come to the end of our longing. But clearly we still haven't found it or else we wouldn't keep on searching. Well, the Magi who came in from the east, they went on their journey with far less information than we've got. But they were paying attention to what was going on around them. They are looking at the natural world. But more than that, they were paying attention to what was going on in their own souls, into the longings of their hearts that, that led them out on this journey to leave their home in search of finding a newborn king, in search of finding the one that would stop all of their seeking. Matthew tells us at one point that they got lost. And so they went into Jerusalem they asked for directions. As the story goes, Herod's priests and scribes were able to tell him exactly what the prophet Micah said and where the, that the prophet said that the child would be born. Which means that these priests and these scribes, they had the information the whole time. That detail is pretty wild if you think about it. They had all the information they needed about the coming of the king. They had consulted the scrolls. They had heard the talks. They knew how it was going to go down. They just didn't do anything with it. So the scene that Matthew sets out is this. These outsiders go on a journey in search of something because they have this desire to know the king. And those who know where to find him miss out altogether because they don't actually believe that this child will be the one that can cure the deepest restlessness of their souls. They're fine to observe, just don't ask them to participate in the story. Well, for thousands of years, followers of Jesus have been celebrating Christmas. We have been announcing to the world that the King has come, the King will come again. The hope of the world is available. It is an open secret. And we live in a culture that is chasing after hope. And so you'd think that these two things would be a good match, right? But what we find is that Advent always makes this really odd home in a culture that prizes searching, that prizes the journey, that laws the, the search for truth and hope, holiday tidings and greetings of good cheer and all that, get, you know, can get behind the search for meaning. But at the same time, there's this creeping cynicism that it's even possible for those who have set out on the journey to actually find anything that they're looking for. Say you're searching and people will say, that's good for you. They'll honor the journey. But if you say that you found something, well, people will either assume you've gotten complacent at best or just flat out obnoxious at worst. I know this because these are the conversations I have with members of my own family. A few years ago, my brother and sister-in-law came over on Christmas Eve. My brother is very much a spiritual journeyman. Uh, over the last 20 years, his search has taken him kind of on the, the greatest hits of world religions. He's gone through Mormonism, Catholicism, atheism, Buddhism. It's also led him to pursue a master's degree in philosophy and even a seminary degree. And a practicing Wiccan along the way. 
And he's got a tapestry of tattoos that kind of mark each stage of the journey. I love that guy. He is as enigmatic as they come. I am clearly the least interesting person in my family. <laughs> well, on this visit on Christmas Eve a few years back, I mentioned that you know, I had to excuse myself. Uh, you know, I had to get ready for Christmas Eve services at my church. And so I asked... Uh, if he and his wife would like to come, knowing full well that they weren't going to come, but, you know, you're just polite, right? Only apparently that was the most offensive thing I could have done. And he let me know that my being an Orthodox Christian represented everything that was wrong with the world. Everything? I mean, the movie version of Cats? Like... <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with that, Brian. Come on. (laughs) Well, he went on to say that it was just the height of arrogance for me to claim that I could say that something is true when all of us are just stumbling around in the dark. Now, it's true, as the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, that we see things now as those who look through a glass darkly, which is an acknowledgement from Paul himself that we do not see the whole picture of God's glory. But what often gets lost is that while we see through a dark glass, we still see something. And that something is enough. When the Magi found Jesus, they stopped their search, they bent their knees in adoration, they worshipped the one that they had come to know as the true king. And Matthew records this shift in his gospel, whereas before he would refer to King Herod, after this point he only ever mentions him as Herod again. Tradition says that these men were wise, and maybe their wisdom consists in this, that they knew how to embrace hope when they found it. Early on in his life, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard believed that the quest of his life was to find a truth that is true for me, to find the idea for which I can live and die. And it's easy to hear and interpret those words through the relativism of our age that, you know, you find your truth, I find my truth. It's just not any one of us claim that we have the truth. But what Kierkegaard was actually getting at is that we have to find that central passion that fuels our lives, that compels us to pursue it with everything that we've got. Otherwise, we're just going to live fractured and dissipated lives. We've got to find that thing where it's not just knowing something but doing something with what we know we have to move from observation to participation he goes on what i really lack is to be clear in my mind what i am to do not what i am to know except insofar as a certain understanding must precede every action the thing is to understand myself to see what god really wishes me to do What good would it do to me if the truth stood before me, cold and naked, not caring whether I recognized her or not, and and producing in me a shudder of fear rather than a trusting devotion? Must not the truth be taken up into my life? That is what I now recognize as the most important thing. We gather here at Advent, not because it's one more stop on our restless search for something more, The liturgy and the songs are not just window dressing to the the soul's search for meaning. I hope to God I am not up here giving you information about how to hack your life or how to arrange your deck so you'll win the game of life. 
No, we, we come here because we have the audacity to claim that we have been found by the one that we spend so much of our time searching for. And like the Magi, the truth lay before us, wrapped in the person of Jesus. And the question that comes to us is the one that Kierkegaard posed to a culture that was awash in all kinds of religious silliness. What am I to do with what I know? How is the truth going to be taken up into my life? Now, don't get me wrong. That does not mean that we have it all figured out. We see through a glass darkly. It is really dark. There's more truth than will ever be found. And so I think that means that followers of Jesus have got to be the most curious people out there because we follow the one who is truth. And so it's like these wise men, if you follow the light that you have, it's just going to lead you back to Jesus. And there is truth to be found outside of these walls for sure. It was never the calling of the church to have every answer to every search only to bear witness to the truth that we know, that everything that our restless hearts have been searching for is found in the one who gave up the trappings of heaven and came searching for us. And so maybe the question isn't, is there something more? Is there something else out there? The question is, how will you take the truth of Christ that you have experienced into your life? The truth that The love which created the universe that set the stars in motion that would lead to the birth of the king is also the love that came searching out for you. For their part, Matthew tells us that the Magi were absolutely undone by what they found. King James Version puts it best. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. They could not be more excited by what they found. Their joy was so great, and it wasn't simply because their journey had come to an end. It's because what they found meant that they were never going to be the same again. They still have to journey home. But when they journey home, everything will be different. And that is our story at Christmas, that in the coming of our Lord, all of our striving ceases, and so we do not need to search down any other road, only going further down and further in on the road in which we have already been found. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Almighty God, as the Magi sought after you and rejoiced, So we rejoice when we come to the place of the stars shining. Here at this table, we celebrate that you have come to find us in the person of Jesus. And not only do you find us, but you remove the barrier of our guilt and you greet us as guests invited. And so may we come to this meal as a sign and a foretaste of the feast that is to come. We pray this in the strong name of our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, I don't know what it is that you have come searching for this morning, but I invite you to come to this table in the knowledge that you have been found. And so, friends, as we come, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts.
Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together. And when he had given thanks, he took the bread and broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Take all of you and eat. And in the same way, after he took the cup and poured it out, saying, This cup is the, the new covenant shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. So it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his dying until he comes again. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. We'll be serving communion this morning by two lines formed in the center aisle. On the inner ring of the communion plates are, uh, is wine, and on the outer rings in clear is juice. Friends, Come. Everything has been made ready. But those who are serving communion come forward. And friends, as they do, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. That Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. Amen.